This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY-Giving. Tonight we begin a series of what we're calling Red Letter Studies. Red Letter Studies because it refers to the red letters that you find in a lot of Bibles that are the words of Christ. And just as a bit of trivia, that really didn't start happening until around 100 years ago. I looked up the history of red letter Bibles and things like that. And it was honestly, it came about by one man talking to another man. I think they were both ministers sitting in a back office of a church somewhere. And one of them said, what if we published a Bible that had the words of Christ in red? What do you think about that? And the guy basically said, the man that he was talking to basically said, well, I don't see how it could do any harm and it could probably do an awful lot of good. Because sometimes you're not sure who's talking. If you've just got a regular black, uh, black letter edition, they never call it that. Black, why gotta be black? Well, because the ink's black, that's why. Um, but it's hard to tell sometimes who's talking when you're reading Scripture because Scripture isn't, uh, it isn't typeset and structured in the same way that we're used to reading everything that we do read that's published in the modern era. It isn't broken out into paragraphs usually, and you never see quotation marks, not if you're in the King James Version. So even though I promote the King James exclusively, I do confess that that is one disadvantage. But... It's not exclusive to the King James. I don't think the NIV puts things in quotes or the ESV. I don't think any of them. You got to get off way off the beaten path as far as uh, Bible translations in order to get something that shows you quotation marks whenever someone's uttering something. So the red letter Bibles were born around a hundred years ago, which is where we derive our title from for these for these uh, teachings. So what are we teaching? Well, as the title implies. These are the specific teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, as believers, as modern New Testament believers, people who live in the New Testament era, it's easy to actually forget what Jesus taught because we spend so much time in other books of the Bible, particularly in the letters of the apostles, be they Peter or Paul or James or John or what have you, or who have you, it's easy to forget that Jesus actually taught things himself. Another reason for that, and I actually had a, a thing that I wrote up a long time ago on this subject, and it didn't even occur to me to bring it tonight because I just wanted to jump right into our text. But another reason why the teachings of Jesus often, not a whole lot, I don't think, but often get neglected by believers, by Christians, is because of the time period that he taught in and because you have to dig his teachings out of a historical gospel narrative. Do you know what I mean by that? Now, the letters of Paul, they're all they're It's all right there laid out for you in his letters. He was writing to a person or he was writing to a church. And all you have to do is turn to first Corinthians or to Ephesians or to whichever letter that he wrote and just start reading and his teachings are there. But with the teachings of Christ, there is no book of Jesus. There is no book of first, second, or third Jesus. 
to extract Jesus's teachings or to learn Jesus's teachings, we have to extract them from Scripture. We have to take them. We have to take them from the Gospels, and that means we have to read through a lot of history. And, but you can't really take it all out of that and just produce its own document. These are the teachings of Jesus. You can do that, but if you do that, if you just extract everything that he taught and stick it in its own document then you lose its context because we get the context of his teachings from where he was when he was teaching what he was teaching and who he was talking to when he was teaching what he was teaching because he didn't just teach the Jews. He spoke to the woman at the well. It was a Samaritan, uh, Samarian, I believe. And, uh, and he had encounters with more than one Gentile and and so we need to have all of it. So it's a little bit more challenging to study the teachings of Jesus than to study the teachings of the apostles, just because it takes a little bit more work to dig and to extract and to retain its context. But we want to begin in Matthew, Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter five. Well, why so much? Why so much preamble about context and all of that? OK, all right. There, I got you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm still not actually going to start there quite yet. Why all the preamble about the context? Because it's important to understand that while Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, while Jesus is our great high priest, while the New Testament exists because of what Jesus did, Jesus actually lived and taught in the Old Testament. Do you understand what I mean by that? I, I kind of threw that phrasing out there almost as a deliberate curveball, but not going to leave it that way. Well, the Gospels are in the New Testament. Well, yes, they are. But really, the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are an inter, they're almost an interim period. Because while Jesus lived and walked the face of the earth, mankind was still under the law because Jesus had not yet died. The perfect sacrifice that takes that not only um, propitiates sin, if we may use that 25 cent word from the New Testament, the, the perfect sacrifice of Christ's blood that not only propitiates sin, but completely changes the human heart, something no animal sacrifice could ever accomplish in the Old Testament or else Jesus wouldn't have needed to do what he did. That sacrifice hadn't occurred yet. The Jews were still under the law and he was sent as a Jewish Messiah unto God's people, the Jews. He had not yet opened anything up to the Gentiles. The veil of the temple had not yet been torn, which is what really communicated that message of no more barriers, no more divisions. God was saying, now everybody can come on in because Jesus is the great high priest. Well, none of that had occurred yet. So Jesus lived and taught in Old Testament Israel to a people that were still rightly under the law of Moses. That's very important to understand, especially in later chapters of the Gospels when you read about end times prophecies and things that are supposed to happen. And, and, he, and he speaks about that. It really helps you frame your understanding more perfectly concerning things that are yet to come. And that's probably a good thing to start looking into, just saying, because things are afoot. If you've been staying tuned into the news, half the Middle East about completely lost their marbles when President Trump announced 
that he was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It's just one more step down that path. I really believe that. I'm not trying to make a, a, a sensational deal, but it is. there is scripture. There is prophecy. It is in the word. And so it's good to understand. Is it critical for whether or not you go to heaven? No, Jesus is critical for that. But it is still, it is good to understand and know what is right and what is true so that some half-baked goofball from the church of God the mother or whatever can't come traipsing along and fill your head with a bunch of hooey because none of us really wants to be led astray, do we? No. I like the simplicity of the faith. <coughs> Excuse me. The simplicity of the faith of our Lord Jesus. The same faith that was delivered unto the apostles, that was delivered unto the disciples in the early churches, that's what I like. I don't like complicated stuff, unless it has to be complicated. Some things are, most things really are not. But let's begin chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That was almost Sunday night's message, by the way. It's probably coming. We'll see what God wants. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Stop right there. Now this portion of Scripture, verses 1 through 12, finds its way on a lot of posters and knitted things that get framed and hung on walls and, and inspirational material and home decor and things like that. I'm pretty sure that if you head up to Cornerstone, is it Cornerstone Books, uh, Bookstore or something like that up on Del Range, I'm pretty sure you're going to find one or more pieces of artwork that probably feature uh, part or all of this portion. It's popular, and it's popular for a reason. It sounds nice. It rings true, because it is. Okay, don't worry. We're not going somewhere off the beaten path there. And it's very poetic, and it's very encouraging. But a lot of times when we read it, we're so familiar with it because it is so familiar of portion of Scripture. It's like John 3.16 for most of us is just, oh yeah, John 3.16, the, the most, I think it is the most oft-quoted Scripture from the entire New Testament, possibly the entire Bible, at least among church folks, Okay. But however familiar the text may be, there is something in there for us every single time that we read it. Now let's go back and let's actually chew on some of these, if we may. Let's chew on some of these, or let's actually do, oh, who said it? Who said it? Was it Oswald Chambers? Was it Spurgeon? I don't remember. But he said something along these lines. Meditate. Meditate on the Scriptures, brethren. 
These grapes will yield no wine until they are pressed. I like that. I like that. You got to press these things. You got to tear them apart. You got to eat them. You know, you, you, nobody eats a steak and then it still looks like a steak somewhere down in their stomach. This sounds kind of gross, okay, but think about that. Nah, if you're going to get what you need to get, you have to wreck it, tear it apart, destroy it in a good way. You have to ingest it, okay? So we're digging down into biblical theology. Let's call it that way. We'll come back up for air with the systematic stuff later on. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice he didn't say blessed are the poor. He didn't say that. He said blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, if we're poor in terms of money, if we're cash poor, money poor, wealth poor, or whatever, that doesn't automatically make us blessed. What does it make us? Poor. That's what makes us. Poor does not equal virtuous. And this bears some, some attention because that has oftentimes been confused with virtue. You look at the, at the ethics of many of the monastic orders throughout the Middle Ages, and one of their principal virtues uh, rested in a vow of poverty. This, this, uh, this, this odd assumption, uh, and really it stems from a kind of self-righteousness, and, 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 and psychologically I suspect it even ties into some other things that are far darker. Okay, but that's, that's theory, I'm not going to go there, but being poor is not virtuous, it's just poor. Being poor doesn't mean that someone is automatically therefore a good person, but it incites feelings of pity and sympathy. It should, I hope it does, some feeling of pity, sympathy, compassion on someone who is perhaps on hard times or straight times or something along those lines. But in this country, at least, you always have to look at to, you need to look at why somebody is in that way. You don't, can't always make a judgment call on it, and, and you, know, you have to dig down a lot of different layers to find out why a person's in a situation that they're in. Sometimes it's genuine hardship. I'll even use the phrase hard luck and justify that by pointing back to Solomon, saying that time and chance happen to everyone. Okay, so there's some Bible behind that. I'm not just throwing that out there uh, with no support. But in countries like this, people tend to be poor because of bad decisions. They tend to be poor because of bad decisions. Not always the case. Like I said, all it takes is one, one good medical disaster in your life and it can turn your whole financial world upside down and not in a good way at all. But many times, I would even venture to say most times, people are poor in this country because of decisions that they've made. And it's brought about consequences. And well, what do we do with that? Does that mean that they're lesser people, that they're bad people, that they're unvirtuous people? No, it has nothing to do with virtue or righteousness. It just has everything to do with choices as well as some time and chance, again, to refer back to Solomon. So we don't judge people's character for good or bad because of their economic net worth. I'm glad because I've been dirt poor in times past. I've known what it's like to, as we joked about on Sunday, have two nickels in your pocket, rubbing them together for a week, try to make something happen, and it doesn't. Okay? I've been there. It's no fun. I've been to where I've had to pawn things or take things down and put them in hock just to get some cash to put in the gas tank. I've been there. It's lousy. It's no fun. But there are lessons in there. Okay? 
There are lessons in there. If I am poor, if I am hurting financially and I'm just not in a good place, first of all, I want to know why. And that's where self-honesty comes into play again. Okay, well, I think I am where I am because of this, this, and this, and this. And you discover the root causes and some of it's luck, a lot of it's opportunity, and a lot of it's personal decision. Okay, well then, what am I going to learn from it? Well, if I'm poor because of the decisions that I've made, then what I learned from that is don't make those same decisions. Don't make those same decisions. Don't be the definition of insanity, continuing to do the same thing, expecting somehow different or new results. So what Jesus is saying here is a, that was a lot of focus on the negative, perhaps, or what Jesus is not saying. So let's focus now on what he is saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It has nothing to do with the dollars that are or are not in your bank or wallet. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now you have to read these and take them at face value. These are promises. These are promises by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I don't know if you've done much mourning this year. I did get some news yesterday. I believe it was yesterday. When did you call me, brother? Was it yesterday? Okay, sometimes the hours blur. I did get some news, very, some very tragic news yesterday. And you know, those of you who know, we just ask that you be in prayer. Be in prayer for that person's family. It's not a good situation. But he says that they who mourn shall be comforted. And that's not much of a comfort when you're in the midst of a fresh tragedy. But just stored away in the back of your mind, comfort is on the way. Again, especially if you have the Holy Ghost, because he's right there in a moment's notice anyway. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted, And then he says, blessed are the meek. He did not say, blessed are the weak. Meekness and weakness really aren't even related. They are nothing alike. And I'm only bringing that up because a lot of people have this notion that to be meek is to be weak, and that is not at all what it is. Meekness is a profound and a very subtle kind of strength. It is a very subtle kind of strength. Like, uh, oh, what's a... What's well, at least a halfway good metaphor. Do you ever pull up to a stoplight in your younger, more foolish drag racing days and pull up next to a car that didn't look like anything special at all? And yet, whoever revved their engine doesn't really matter. When the light turned green, they smoked you like a cheap cigar because the car wasn't styled in a way that declared that it had 350, 400 or more horsepower. And I'm trying to think of a good example, but I haven't owned any cars like that ever, so I can't really give you one. I don't really know. But there are automobiles out there that are like that. Um, I had a, well, I can think of one, maybe not so, maybe not one so muscle, uh, muscular as that, so to speak, but had a friend in Bible college who had a Grand National uh, we'll see what's that well it just looked like any who made the grand national was that a buick gmc anybody who knows bob brother do you know who made the grand national back in the 80s 
that was a Pontiac, but the body style on that thing just looked like any old boring 80s four-door sedan, didn't it? But when you put your foot in the gas pedal of that thing, you learned differently, didn't you? If I remember right. What's that? Sleeper, that's what they called them, sleepers. Meekness is a sleeper virtue. I like that. Can I take that? We'll give you the credit. Copyright 2018, Brother Bob Wink. There you go. I don't think there's any revenue going to come in from it, but you get the credit. Meekness is a sleeper virtue. It's, it speaks of humility. Moses was described as being the meekest man in all of the earth. Um, I could describe my own pastor uh, as probably right at that level right there. And, and, and uh, hopefully when the time is right, or if, if, when, if and when he's coming through Cheyenne, he'll stop by, you actually get to meet him. He's a wonderful human being. But meekness is one of those things that people don't always see. And because a lot of people wrongly associate meekness with weakness and inability to uh, stand up for truth, right, or, or anything along those lines, because they wrongly associate it with weakness, a lot of times they discover, just like the poor fool who tries to, to drag race the Grand National when all they're driving is a moderately souped-up Honda, there is very real strength in meekness. There's strength of character. There's also strength in self-control that ties into temperance, which is one of the virtues that, we're, that we learn about over in 2 Peter. Meekness is very, very strong. And it keeps us out of a lot of bad, escalated, hothead situations. There's another proverb I want to attach to that. It's not from the Bible. It's a secular proverb, and I think, but I think there's a lot of merit to it if I can share it with you. The willow bends in the wind until one day it is many willows, a wall against the wind. So what does that mean? Well, meekness sometimes requires us to bend in the face of certain wind storms, usually other people's wrath, other people's anger, other people's angry tirades and things like that. Meekness may, even if we are in the right and have done no wrong, Meekness sometimes required that we simply endure the barrage and then without confessing any wrongdoing, if we're not in the wrong, because you don't take the blame for someone else's stuff because that's actually dishonest. I mean, there's a way to take the heat without being dishonest, but you know, we can dig into that uh, deeper another time. But meekness will take that heat. They'll take that barrage and bend with it. It's that old, it's that, it's that old saying about, you know, there was a country song about that. My goodness, we're really tying all these things together tonight, aren't we? About being strong enough to bend. Well, that's meekness a lot of times. You take something in meekness, means that you do not rise up in retaliation to defend yourself. There's a time when that needs to be done. Yes, granted, but it doesn't have to be done all the time. And you may find that you win someone, you win someone by meekly enduring what they throw at you and then they realize what a beast they're being and then they feel bad and then they kind of change their ways because they're ashamed of their own behavior. But if everybody escalates all the time, 
well then eventually you hit the nuclear option and then there's just no saving the situation and that lots of different areas of life that can apply to it's always in relation to uh to relationships but blessed are the meek he says for they shall inherit the earth blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled again we're reading these at face value their promises blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness they hunger for it they thirst after it they want righteousness they want it in society they want it in their homes they want it in their own hearts and a person that hungers and thirsts after righteousness wants to see that everywhere it's why a lot of people rejoice when righteous things actually happen. And let me refer back to President Trump, if I may, in his declaration about Jerusalem. That, I think, was a pretty righteous deed. I'm just sharing an opinion, okay? Not expressing wholehearted fanboy support for the man. But we do pray for him. We do pray for him. And we'll leave it at that. But I think that that was a pretty righteous thing to do. Why not? It was their capital thousands of years ago. It was their capital even after they lost their sovereignty and they were a vassal state to Babylon and to other empires. It has always been their capital. And so to officially recognize it as their capital, someone like me is thinking, well, what took them so long? Well, what took them so long is the politics of the day. That's what took them so long because many presidents have declared and even run, I believe they've run their campaigns partly on uh, the promise to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and then Barack Obama did it. George Bush made that promise. I do believe, uh, Bush Jr., um, I don't remember if Bill Clinton did or not. I think he did. And, uh, it, it, and I, th I actually think that it goes back quite a few presidents made that promise, but they just never, just never came to pass. They just never fulfilled it for whatever reason. I, I really believe it boils down to the politics of the day. And, and you, you can't do anything with Israel and Jerusalem without touching prophecy somewhere in Scripture. It's just, there's no such thing as no strings attached where Jerusalem and where Israel are concerned. It just isn't. And it's, it's, that, there's reasons for that. But here he says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Why are they blessed? For they shall be filled. And without getting it possibly into Thursday night's message, we'll see. We might just be all up in it and then be all up in it again on Thursday night. If the person, if a man or a woman hungers and thirsts, thirst, thirsts, thirsts after righteousnesses, then they shall be filled. That's the promise. People tend to achieve or get whatever they obsess about the most. And that's, that's all across life right there. They tend to. If you obsess on something long enough, you are going to find a way to get what you are obsessing over, right or wrong. Many times it's wrong. Many times people obsess over things that really are not right and really are not lawful, but they obsess over it. Their mind is stuck to it like Velcro and they just can't bring themselves to peel it off of it and get it stuck on something else. And so they pursue it even to their own hurt or to the hurt of others. But 
whether right or wrong, good or bad. If you got this obsession in your mind, I just really, man, I just, I want, I want a Maserati. I want a brand new Maserati more than I want anything else. Well, have you ever driven through a trailer park? Maybe you didn't see a Maserati, but you saw some expensive cars parked next to a trailer that looked half made of rust. And the first thing that your mind does is like, wait a second, how, how does that work? How, how does that work? I'm not knocking trailers. My grandmother lived in a beautiful one, okay? But you've seen it sometimes where they've they got a $75,000 automobile parked outside of a single wide. And the way, the way that my think is like, how did that happen? Well, how that happened is they really wanted that car more than they wanted a different place to live. We tend to get what we obsess about the most. We do. We tend to get what we obsess about the most. Well, if we obsess, ooh, oh yeah, if we obsess on righteousness, then Jesus' promise is that we shall be filled with it. If you're hungry for righteousness in your life, in every aspect of your life, if you're hungry for it and you want that more than anything else, you'll be filled with it. You'll be filled with it. And one reason that you will, okay, is not because there's going to be this magical load of righteousness going come helicoptered in over your house or trailer or apartment or whatever it is, or Maserati, whatever you're living in, okay? It's not going to get helicoptered over your home and then dropped on your head. Poof! Righteousness! Thank you. Comes in a box from Amazon with a big smile on it. No, it's because if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you will accept nothing less. You will accept nothing less. And knowing the word of God, you'll know what's righteous and what's unrighteous. And so you rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly understanding and rightly being led by the spirit of God, because that's what a child of God is. That is the prime qualifier of a child of God is one who is led by the spirit of God. Okay, then you will accept nothing other than what is righteous. And thus, your whole life will be filled with it. That's not to say that other people from without may not impose some kind of an unrighteousness on you. They may treat you unrighteously. You might get fired from your job and you did absolutely nothing wrong and didn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. Or, you know, I'll let you and your imaginations apply different areas where that, where that may be. But as far as what you select, what you allow into your life, what you bring into your life, what you practice in your life, all of that, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness then you're going to be filled because that's what you want more than anything else. And I'll tell you this, brothers, sisters, I will tell you this. It's not, a, I don't want to say it's a warning because warnings are always this negative connotation, okay? This is not a negative thing, okay? Just be advised, okay? Can I use that rather than be warned? Be advised. You will be tested. You will be tested. You will be tested by the world you will be tested by the flesh and you will be tested by the devil and they will all see what you're made of. Oh, you want righteousness in your life? Well, what about this? Imagine lights. Imagine one of the prices right uh, models or whatever, you know, lifting, lifting, lifting the box on this 
brand new, whatever. But you rightly dividing the word of truth, you knowing the will of God, because you know the word of God, you following, being led by the Spirit of God, know whether or not it's lawful. I don't say this lightly because I've been tempted. I've been tempted. I've been tempted very straightly in years gone by. But when you know the truth, then you just know that no matter how appealing something might be, if it's just not an option, it's just not an option, no matter how it hurts. Well, what do I do in a situation like that? Well, let's jump back over to 1 Peter and trust your soul to God as unto a faithful creator and rest assured that Jesus felt every bit of it himself and that if we are faithful, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, there are blessings that will come. There are blessings that will come. Let's move on. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now that's a very good one. That's a very, very good one to remember and to remind ourselves of when, if we have an overdeveloped sense of justice, and if you drive at all in traffic anywhere ever, you probably have an overdeveloped sense of justice. Because when that person cuts you off, then you find yourself wishing you were a cop and you could pull them over in that instant and cite them. $150, $300, how dare you drive like that? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You have to remember that when people do you wrong. You have to remember that when people do you wrong. Because if we are not merciful to others, then in the hour, I am convinced of this, in the hour when we find that we really need mercy, we won't have it. We won't receive it. Be merciful to people. Be merciful to people who cross you or who upset you or who, or who do you a, a real injustice. Be merciful. There's times when you can't be, I understand, especially, you know, if there's certain kinds of consequences or whatever, if, or if having mercy on someone will simply enable them to continue in a certain kind of bad behavior. I mean, it's, 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 it's not a rock solid thing applicable, applicable to every single situation under the sun. I'm not saying that. But as a general rule, if you show mercy to others, then people are going to show mercy to you. If you're merciful to them, they'll be merciful to you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. There's a lot to be said for people in families, especially extended families, where you got like umpteen kids, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids, or something like that. And you, in families that size, have you ever noticed that one or more of the siblings take on the role of the peacemaker? Because they don't like hearing everybody else fight and argue, and so they take it upon themselves to try to help smooth over conflicts, usually the conflicts of other people. 
And whether that's always good or bad or wise or not can be argued. There's a proverb that makes it clear that a man who meddles in strife that does not belong to him takes a dog by the ears. So that's not something that you always want to throw yourself into. But he, Jesus says here, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace rather than stirring up strife, rather than stirring up trouble and stirring up conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's a virtue to want to help disparate parties come to an agreement on something. It's a virtue to want to see peace develop between peoples, nations, whatever, rather than wanting to see war. Christians really aren't war mongers. Did you know that? We don't really rejoice when the United States decides that we have to enter into conflict. I'm not saying that we're pacifists either. I'm not saying that. The Bible doesn't really tell us to be pacifists. But we don't rejoice when our armies have to mobilize. Now, after September 11th, I'll confess, I kind of rejoiced. I was glad to know that we had a clear enemy that, had, that because of what they had done, we were mobilizing the troops. And I know that that's complicated, the parties involved and how that all went. But as a general rule, war isn't something we rejoice about. Because as one man said, war is worse than hell. Because in hell, only the guilty suffer. And in war, absolutely everybody suffers. So let's go ahead and bring it to a close tonight with this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that mourn. And blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, some of these are virtues. Not all of them are virtues. Some of them are merely conditions. But whatever it may be, maybe you fall into one or more of these categories tonight. Jesus says, you're blessed. And your blessing is on the way as long as we continue to look to Him for our blessing and for our peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.